If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Gawthorne. In the West, our images of the Second World War tend to be dominated by two figures, Churchill and Hitler. But in his new book, Stalin's War, the American historian Sean McMeekin argues that the Soviet leader was central to the conflict and emerged as its most significant victor. In conversation with BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar, Sean lays out his argument and considers how Stalin managed to dominate his British and American allies. Our images of World War II here in Britain, at least, tend to be dominated by two men, which is Hitler and Churchill. And I mean, you only need to look at book covers, magazine covers history programmes on TV, and it's those two faces that dominate. But but you've decided to pivot your history around Stalin. And I wonder if you can explain why you think he is so central to this conflict. Well, it's a great question. I, I think the reason I find Stalin to be central to the conflict, I suppose, on the one hand, there's the, the kind of the broad lens, you might say. If you look all the way back to the Japanese um, incursion invasion of Manchuria in 1931, uh, there you essentially have a long-running struggle between Japan and first Tsarist Russia and then the Soviet Union over control of Manchuria, its ports and railways, etc. 
And then if you look at where the war actually ends um, in early September 1945, it ends with the Soviets invading and occupying Manchuria, North Korea, um, the Kurile, up to the Habamai Islands, and even making a, a final push that, that actually failed to try to get permission to invade Hokkaido. So you can say at the beginning and the end, it's Stalin's war. And perhaps there are moments, uh, certainly from kind of about 1930 to 1940, what Churchill might have called the finest hour when England stood alone, where it's clear that the story is kind of being dominated by these other characters. Uh, but even then, if you actually look a little deeper, you'll find out that in, in 1939, um, it wasn't simply the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that enabled Hitler to contemplate this invasion of Poland with at least some equanimity, that is, without fighting a, a grand two-front war as Germany had to face in the First World War. Um, but also, if you actually look at, at the the background of uh, the German invasion of France and the Low Countries and you know, the, the kind of scare about the possible invasion of England. Stalin was uh, literally fueling the Wehrmacht, that is, fueling it with, with actual petroleum and war supplies, um, you know, even while essentially functioning as, as a, a sort of an unofficial partner in arms, um, both in the division of Poland, um, in the, the permission that Hitler grants Stalin to make these moves in the Baltic area and Finland and also Bessarabia. And then at the end, the, the final settlement, I, I think it's uh, there's simply no way of denying that however the war might have started, it, it became Stalin's war. Stalin was the great victor in the end in terms of uh, territory seized, in terms of war booty seized, in terms of concrete gains, um, and in the more unpleasant sense, of course, in terms of what we might call slave labor, that is, massive numbers of prisoners of war incorporated into the gulag and, and really the, the Soviet forced economy. And so something you touched upon early in that answer is the time scale. And often people say, oh, well, the, the Soviet Union was only actually fighting the war for four years, not as many as Britain, not as many as Germany. But would you argue Stalin's war is actually longer than for the other European powers? Well, it, it's longer even in the most obvious sense that that's how Stalin perceived it. Um, in the short course, this sort of Bible of international communism commentary on the events of the day and how they were fitting into Marxism-Leninism, uh, published in 1938 as the Czechoslovakia crisis was just start, starting to break. Stalin talked about this this second or great imperialist wars is already having begun. Um, the Soviet Union was, was picking its spots. It was waiting to intervene at the right moment. But the expectation all along was that the Soviet Union would intervene. And that's obviously what the, the five-year plans were about, preparing for war, uh, building up armaments, building up the arsenal, building up uh, mobile striking power, especially when it came to things like tanks. It was always the expectation, I mean, dating back to the earliest utterances of of Lenin and Stalin and foreign policy, that there would be another war and that the Soviet Union would enter that war. Um, and I do think there's a way in which Stalin has kind of been let off the hook a little bit, even in the histories of the Eastern Front. There might be a, a brief prelude that you'll read, but essentially the story starts on June 22nd, 1941, with the German invasion, which really does let Stalin off the hook in the sense that you simply ignore everything that preceded this. You ignore, for example, the Soviet invasion of Finland, um, an act of... of quite obvious and blatant armed aggression for which the Soviet Union was actually expelled from the League of Nations. Amazingly, this is something that didn't actually happen to Japan, Italy, or Germany. They actually resigned from the League of Nations. The Soviet Union was actually expelled, and the Soviet Union was, was perceived by most of the rest of the powers as an aggressor, if not perhaps a, a fully equal co-belligerent of Hitler, then, then certainly as... Um, a fellow aggressor and invader. I think what really happened on June 22nd, 1941, is that a kind of flip was switched and uh, the narrative changed. Uh, suddenly, Stalin and the, and the Red Army and the Soviet Union, suddenly they were victims, they were heroes, they were allies. And everyone just kind of put everything that had preceded this back into the memory hole. 
Now, there is an argument that I've heard before, I'm sure you've, you've come across too, that Stalin, unlike leaders such as Lenin and Trotsky, was almost more defensive in nature and wasn't really planning for world revolution. He was all about securing his own dominance of the Soviet Union. But are you saying that's actually not the case and that he was quite expansionist in his aims? Oh, he was undoubtedly expansionist in his aims. I think the difference might have come in, in terms of timetable, tactics, strategic vision. Stalin certainly had what we might call strategic patience. Um, that is, he did not necessarily need to rush things along in the way that, that Trotsky probably would have. Trotsky with his famous kind of view of permanent revolution and revolution now and constantly going on the offensive. Stalin certainly had, I think, a different temperament uh, when it came to, to strategy, to world affairs generally. Um, but as far as Soviet foreign policy and war aims, I think they're quite clear. The Soviet Union was emphatically a revisionist power in the 1930s. It's just that once again, because of all the focus on on Hitler and and German efforts to revise and and really scrap the Versailles Treaty, Italian aims under Mussolini and and the Japanese revisionist aims, um, the Soviet Union, for whatever reason, tends to get this pass. Whereas, in fact, if if you simply go back and you read the documents, which are available now, and you can see the the chatter is quite clear uh, on the Soviet foreign ministry. Again, it's not necessarily emphasized, and and, and the West wasn't necessarily paying attention, but all these hints are being dropped left and right about the Soviet uh, claims on places like Bessarabia, that is, a revisionist aims vis-a-vis Romania, that the Baltic states were not really seen as legitimately independent. Uh, Stalin started making the first serious feelers about making a move into Finland and demanding basing rights and certain revisions of the frontier in Finland as early as 1938. And regarding Poland, uh, which is, I suppose, the most prominent example, um, Stalin and I think uh, his advisors were, they were subtle in the way that they went about it, but they were dropping pretty clear hints that they wanted to revise the borders with Poland. And to some extent, you could say they had a a perfectly fine justification for this. Poland had, after all, invaded the Soviet Union. Ukraine in 1920 revised the borders to the east beyond even the Curzon line, so that even to some extent, the British government was not entirely on board with all of Poland's own territory uh, vis-a-vis that war with the Soviet Union in 1920. Uh, Soviet aims to revise the borders with Poland were perhaps, again, subtly expressed, but were not really hidden. And in fact, there was already this discussion um, in Soviet circles in 1938 about the possibility of of even using Hitler as something of a battering ram uh, to revise Poland and and uh, and ultimately, really, to carve up and partition Poland, which which was really far more Stalin's idea than it was Hitler's. Uh, Hitler certainly had aims in Poland, but the idea of partitioning Poland with the Soviet Union that was emphatically a Soviet aim. It was it was not really especially a German aim in 1938 and 1939. And so um, that's a crucial moment, obviously, when September 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland. So too does the Soviet Union, and Britain and France famously declare war only on on Germany. I mean, in hindsight, do you think that was a mistake? Should or could the Western powers have also made, you know, a similar response to what Stalin was doing? Or was it just completely unfeasible to take on both these regimes at once? Well, one could certainly make the strategic argument that caution was warranted in taking on yet another uh, 
uh, formidable adversary at the time uh, was not in the strategic interest of France and Britain. Um, but you could flip that around, of course, and say that uh, the rather blatant hypocrisy, which was widely noticed around Europe and and, and particularly in the United States, uh, hurt the cause, that is, hurt the cause of the Allies' uh, war aims, what they were fighting for. Were they fighting uh, for the sanctity of borders? Were they fighting to oppose uh, territorial aggression? Um, the kind of thing that one heard about, for example, with the Iraq-Kuwait War in 1990, some sort of a new world order were there were there firm principles for which they were fighting that argument was was much more difficult to make after the soviets invaded and and they essentially did nothing not even a, a slap on the wrist um it's easy to see why they played it that way um the soviets were quite clever and i think careful in the way they handled all of this uh the germans in fact were somewhat frustrated that the soviets took so long to invade that the soviets made it clear that they were not in fact allied to nazi germany there was a kind of plausible deniability they never declared war they never made it clear that in fact they were at war the pretense was it was this sort of protection mission that because poland no longer existed the soviets had moved in to protect some of their fellow nationals and, and co-ethnics they had this way of spinning the story. And then the Germans, frankly, played into their hands. Some of it was quite accidental, uh, a matter of evolving circumstances um, on the battlefield, that because the Soviets took so long to invade, they didn't actually move in until September 17th, more than two weeks after the Germans invaded. The Germans actually passed the demarcation lines, which meant that to some extent they later had to cough back some territory that they had actually won by force of arms. The tricky part was that they couldn't cough it all back without causing serious disruptions. And so the compromise they reached actually played right into Stalin's hands. Um, The Germans effectively bartered um, parts of central Poland, which they were originally supposed to have assigned to Stalin in exchange for Lithuania, which they assigned to the Soviet Union. And that allowed Stalin to pose as if he had really only sliced off a few parts of eastern Poland, which had really been contested and were fairly close to the Curzon lines that Britain had accepted, um, even if the Poles had had violated those lines, so that they could play this as if it was a, a sort of minor revision of the frontier as opposed to a full-scale military invasion. Um, so maybe this is what Britain and France wanted to hear. Maybe Maybe they listened selectively, uh, but it did allow them um, to be quite uh, hypocritical in the way they actually approached these two invasions. And to this day, there's still, I think, a lack of understanding in in the West of what actually happened in Poland in, in September 1939. To begin with, the fact that the Soviet invasion was really the coup de grace. This is what ended the resistance. Um, the Polish government was literally trying to flee into eastern Poland, and their flight was cut off by the Soviet invasion, so that in effect also cut off the escape route for refugees. Jews fleeing the Nazis, Polish dissidents and such, so that they really kind of cut off the last escape route um, and finished Poland off um, quite brutally, but but again with a kind of a, a certain spin that allowed them to pose as if they were not doing the same thing the Germans were. They, they were not as bad. They were not equally guilty of armed aggression. So the Nazi-Soviet pact lasts for two years, and as we know, we came to know Hitler didn't have much respect for it and was, you know, always planning to invade the Soviet Union. But what what was Stalin's thinking over this period? Was he also gearing up for war against Germany? I think Stalin and Hitler were both gearing up for war. Um, Neither of them knew exactly what the timetable would be. Um, That's not necessarily to say, though, that that war was 
inevitable and completely unavoidable. I actually do think there was a moment uh, late in 1940 um, where Hitler wasn't quite clear which direction he wanted to go. It's true that after the fall of France and the Low Countries in the summer of 1940, he did begin looking into this. He advised his generals to begin investigating the possibilities of an Eastern war, and he was obviously thinking about it all along. It had always been something kind of in the back of his mind that he was thinking might eventually be to some extent, the strategic fate of Nazi Germany, this this invasion of the East. Um, But there were a lot of variables that were still quite unclear, uh, one of which was the United States, which was still neutral. Um, There were peace parleys in summer of 1940 before the Battle of Britain, where Hitler was not quite sure whether the British would actually, uh, in the end, come to some kind of arrangement. We know, of course, Churchill was quite stubborn and principled, and and in the end, he he thought about it, but then then refused quite firmly. Um, But even that fall, when Hitler and his, I'll call them pseudo-allies, because, of course, the coordination with Japan was was never very close, uh, when they signed the Tripartite Pact, um, it was something of a cosmetic updating of the previous anti-Comintern pact, which they had signed. That is, it was no longer directed against Stalin and the Soviet Union. It was very much directed against the Anglo-Saxon powers, that is, Britain and the United States seen as, at the very least, supportive of Britain, if not yet an active belligerent. So that there was a cosmetic change, which might have been symbolic, but it might also have been significant. And in fact, the Soviets were informed about it. They were given advance notice and warning, and they were effectively invited to join it. Um, there was a lot of friction because of events in the Balkans, where effectively Stalin and and, and Hitler had, had now butted heads. Uh, there were no longer buffer states, so that part was true. They now had this long frontier bristling with sentries and spies. Um, But they were still trying to adjudicate these questions about the Balkans, about spheres of influence, possibly about Finland, and possibly even about matters such as Turkey and uh, the Turkish Straits, as they're often called, that is, the the, the waterways linking the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. And they discussed all of these things quite seriously, uh, to some extent in good faith, perhaps in some cases in bad faith in Berlin, in this this summit between uh, Molotov um, and Hitler, along with Ribbentrop and some of the other German leaders. Uh, uh, which took place in November 1940. Um, uh, One of the things that I actually discovered in my research, um, people have long known about the summit and some of the bare-bones outlines of of what was both agreed and not agreed. Um, What I hadn't realized was just how firm Stalin was with his instructions to Molotov. That is, he did not want Molotov to give an inch. In in particular, Stalin insisted on... uh, uh, the right to uh, essentially land troops or invade. They used, of course, the, the different language regarding a concession. There was kind of this euphemism, but basically the right to invade Bulgaria, uh, the right to actually land troops at the Bosporus. Um, and they also wanted the Germans essentially to withdraw all of their troops and personnel from Finland and Romania. Uh, to Hitler, this actually had the sound of an ultimatum. And if you actually look at Hitler's speech justifying the invasion once it takes place about uh, seven months later, that is in June 1941, um, he mentioned all of this. He he actually went through chapter and verse with this bitter encounter with Molotov. So that I, I think that to some extent there was long-term planning, medium-term planning, and short-term planning involved with the German invasion of the Soviet Union. But I think as far as Hitler's own mindset, I think he was willing to consider a deal with Stalin in uh, November 1940. And Stalin effectively uh, blackmailed and tried to bully him. Um, and this, this led to this break. I don't think Stalin would have been ready for war that summer, but I do think the Soviets were clearly preparing for a war. They just didn't know when it would start and under what circumstances. That's really interesting, actually, what you were saying about Hitler. And because my understanding has always been that he had this long-term desire for Lebensraum and that he saw the Bolshevik uh, Soviet Union as being the ultimate enemy. So do you think there's a realistic chance he might not have 
invaded the Soviet Union. I think it's possible. I think the odds were probably on balance in favor that he would have done that in 1941. But I do think that that summit mattered, that Molotov and Stalin's actions there mattered. The final directives uh, pursuant to what would become Operation Barbarossa were not actually issued until December 1940. Um, Another thing I discovered, oddly enough, in the Bulgarian archives of all places, um, was, was Hitler's reaction, his very specific reaction to this kind of list of demands, almost this ultimatum that Molotov and Stalin had delivered regarding uh, Hitler's invitation to join join the Tripartite Pact. And he simply unloaded on the Bulgarian minister in one of his kind of famous three-hour monologues. That is, he he really did take offense at Stalin's effort to bully him there. I'm not going to say that's the only reason. Obviously, there are all kinds of other reasons, ideological, potential strategic reasons, involving resources in this somewhat... uh, uh, perhaps over-optimistic view of both the effectiveness of the Wehrmacht and their ability to uh, roll up all these resources of, of Ukraine without without necessarily uh, receiving a, um, sufficient resistance uh, from the Soviets. There was obviously a bit of wishful thinking that went into this too. But I don't think it was necessarily set in stone. I do think that some kind of an arrangement might have been possible. I think the Germans were increasingly almost trapped towards the end of 1940. Uh, Churchill's stubborn refusal to cut a deal. Uh, The Germans had been blocked. Uh, Franco had not allowed them to invest Gibraltar. Uh, The United States was looking increasingly hostile, even if the U.S. wasn't in the war. The Germans really were struggling to find a way out. Um, And I do think that there was some potential prospect um, uh, that is, had Stalin and Molotov uh, behaved perhaps a little bit more reasonably. I mean, some of their demands were really quite aggressive. Uh, regarding Finland, uh, the Soviets, I think, were primed to invade Finland again. Um, that is, they were they were almost openly threatening this by December 1940, about nine months after the the war with Finland uh, had ended with a, with a, uh, a ceasefire and an armistice. And so one, the big moment in the story, or one of the big moments is Barbarossa, where Stalin was was famously kind of caught on the hop, the Soviet forces decimated from the start. I mean, it's always seemed to be a really difficult thing to understand how Stalin, famous for being so paranoid, was seemingly fooled or unprepared for this. What's your take on that moment? Well, I do think that one of the problems was almost an overabundance of intelligence. It's certainly not that Stalin didn't receive warnings. He received warnings from every source imaginable, uh, uh, from uh, liaisons, allies, or potential allies in the case of Britain and the United States uh, from his own spies. He had this vast and superlative spy network uh, from the famous spy in Tokyo, Richard Sorge. He had he had spies in Nazi Germany. He had sources of information coming in from everywhere, um, even a few defectors at the last moment who, who crossed lines. Um, sometimes it's, it's been said that perhaps Hitler was the last person Stalin trusted, that sort of thing. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think there was some wishful thinking involved. Um, I do think that the Soviets were themselves trapped in the sense that they were preparing for war, but they weren't quite ready yet. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why it went so disastrously for them was because of the Soviet military buildup on the German frontier. They had something like 400,000 slave laborers building aerodromes, that is, air bases for the Red Air Force. The vast majority of them, uh, within a half hour's or even a few minutes flying distance from the Reich, they were building them, in fact, even in what we might call the kind of Molotov-Rippentrop territories that Stalin had absorbed since 1939. Um, 
in the same way, they were building new tank parks and petrol stations. Uh, they were building roads. Uh, there were all these construction crews everywhere. At the last minute, they actually did get these warnings, uh, or they started to take them a bit more seriously. And they do issue these instructions, which show that there was a perception of how imminent the invasion was. They issued these last-minute instructions to camouflage all of the air bases, to camouflage some of the tank parks and petrol stations. Um, and they're, they're supposed to do this all in this last-minute rush. They're hoping to get some of it done by July 5th, some of it by July 15th. They're sending out these political commissars to the front. They're reinforcing the front. There are all kinds of orders that show how seriously they were taking the situation. Now, it's true that Stalin himself waited until perhaps the last possible moment uh, to issue instructions on the very night of the invasion, just several hours before it started, um, with a warning and also essentially ordering everyone to combat readiness. Uh, but even those instructions were slightly equivocal in the sense that they weren't given clear instructions. It was made clear to them that they were not supposed to fire without provocation. Um, what is interesting about that, though, is that disastrous as this was in the initial hours and in days and weeks, in a political sense, it was actually quite helpful because it was so obvious that it was the Germans who were invading without some type of genuine provocation on the frontier uh, that really flipped the switch in terms of perception and public opinion of the Soviet Union. And, and Stalin almost instantly is turned from Hitler's fellow totalitarian dictator and armed aggressor into, he was instantly turned into Uncle Joe, as, as Roosevelt later called it, but that is he's instantly a sympathetic figure and the Soviets are sympathetic. And you know, this vast store of sympathy is now in place in Britain and the United States, which will eventually materialize in this gargantuan delivery of, of Lend-Lease war material, industrial inputs, et cetera, into the Soviet Union. Yes, yeah, so actually, I was going to come on to that that uh, point about Lend-Lease. And you, in the book, you talk about the huge amount of resources that Britain and the United States supplied the Soviet Union over, over the course of the war, actually. It's fair to say that you do sort of query whether that was always the best use, best use of these resources, whether this was a, a wise decision on the, the Allied part. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, certainly. In the case of Churchill, there's actually the most famous instance of this is with uh, the 200-odd uh, Hawker Hurricane fighters, uh, which were supposed to reinforce the garrison at Singapore, which were instead immediately sent, sent to Stalin. Um, and, and more broadly, the fact that even some of uh, the fighters and later bombers that were being sent from the United States to, to Britain under Lend-Lease and its provisions were either transferred or, as I sometimes I sometimes use the phrase, re-gifted, that is to say, just kind of processed onto Stalin, um, so that that, to some extent, actually hurt Britain's own rearmament drive. Uh, the same thing was true with tanks. Uh, tanks are often underemphasized in the Lend-Lease story, in part because of the kind of legend of the Soviet T-34 and some of the KV and later Stalin tanks that, uh, that the Soviets actually did have, obviously, good tanks of their own. But in fact, there were massive numbers of tanks sent as well, uh, which made up uh, a critical margin, uh, both in the Battle of Moscow in December 1941. Um, I mentioned in particular the Battle of, of Kursk, as we we normally call it, um, in July 1943, to a slightly lesser extent at Stalingrad. Uh, you later had uh, uh, the vast stores of, of trucks and jeeps, uh, the Willis, the Studebakers sent from the United States. Uh, that began as early as 1941. Um, I do think there was a solid strategic argument from, from the perspective of the British, who were obviously already at war with Nazi Germany, to some extent to siphon off enough to keep the Russians in the war. This argument about potentially saving British lives, 
from a more cynical perspective, possibly using the Russians as a kind of mercenary force. That's one of the ways in which Stalin and some of his advisors and, and apologists have always complained about it, that it was the, this is the kind of uh, uh, spam for blood idea that, that the West was sending this material aid, whereas the Russians were doing the bleeding and dying. In the United States, the question is actually a bit more complicated because the U.S. was still neutral when the U.S. took sides, so to speak, in this conflict. Roosevelt had already adumbrated the idea in the Lend-Lease Act, first uh, passed in March 1941, when a number of congressmen and senators had actually objected that Stalin was Hitler's partner and that we should not include the Soviet Union in these deliveries. Um, In the end, that had been voted down, and Roosevelt had what seemed to be a kind of tacit support uh, from Congress for this policy, even though there were a lot of critics. Um, But it was still a controversial policy. Um, Right up to the invasion of the Soviet Union, in fact, there was a spy scare in Washington, and a number of Soviet attachés were about to be deported. Uh, the, The image of Stalin and the Soviet Union was quite negative. Uh, almost immediately that turns. It doesn't turn into necessarily a groundswell of support for massive Lend-Lease aid to the Soviet Union, but it turned enough that I think Roosevelt could justify the policy. Um, Now, choosing sides was one thing, but then after Pearl Harbor and after the U.S. entered the war, it wasn't simply that the U.S. continued to supply Stalin, but that they literally gave priority to supplying Stalin, even over the needs of the U.S. war in the Pacific. Um, uh, even up to extending what were called A1 priority ratings, where Soviet purchasing agents were, were given requisition forms identical to those used by the U.S. Army. In many cases, they were actually put right in the front of the queue. Um, and this this wasn't simply uh, with regard to finished products, such as warplanes and and trucks and tanks and ammunition and anti-aircraft guns, and, and, and that is finished products. It was also extended to industrial inputs, things like aluminum, critically needed in Soviet factories, uh, finished steel products, ball bearings, chrome, even such things that, well, foodstuffs is maybe one of the most obvious. I don't think the Red Army really could have fought at all without without being fed, essentially, by the surpluses of, uh, of American capitalism. As far as, it, was there an argument against it? I, I do think that um, so long as the Soviets were struggling to survive, you could make a good argument that some level of Lend-Lease aid made a kind of strategic sense. Uh, the part of the story that I find harder to justify is that once the Soviets had finally uh, defeated the Germans at Stalingrad, um, and then again at Kursk in the summer of 1943, there would have been an argument for either scaling down or curtailing the aid. Instead, it actually ramped up much further. uh, So that when the Soviets actually began their kind of long march to Berlin, um, they did so, uh, and they essentially completed that march to Berlin in American Studebakers. Um, That is, that the Allies uh, enabled uh, Soviet conquest. It was not simply a matter of survival, but in the end, conquest was uh, accelerated, greased, and really ultimately made possible by this vast delivery of Lend-Lease motors and materiel. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Had that war done more damage to Europe and to to the infrastructure, to the population of these countries, I think Stalin certainly might have liked to be able to conquer all of Europe, but I'm not sure there was ever a realistic hope that that would transpire. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So why do you think the Western leaders continued to supply Stalin in such a way? Was it partly down to his own relationship with FDR and Churchill? Well, that's a great question. I I do think to some extent uh, the interpersonal relationships mattered. Um, It was quite clear at Tehran that Roosevelt made a a play really for, for Stalin, for his support, for his approval, even for his affections, that he thought well of Stalin, um, that he wanted to please Stalin, to keep Stalin happy. Um, Some of it was simple momentum. I think once this program got going, uh, it created this vast, almost hydraulic force where whole sectors of the U.S. economy were reshaped to meet Stalin's need. Um, This is true, for example, food production, where uh, the famous spam, uh, something like 13 to 15 percent of of U.S. pork production was now being sent to Stalin. Um, This was true even with things such as butter, Butter was actually rationed, and Americans were actually told to start eating margarine instead, oleo, as it was then called, uh, so that the Russians could have butter. Uh, A lot of it was just typically this momentum that developed. And if ever anyone raised questions, um, which a lot of people did, both in Congress and in the public at large, they were dismissed. And there was a kind of moral argument here, which I do find somewhat persuasive. The Russians were suffering so horribly, that is, that they made this argument about things such as oddly enough, even crab, along with butter and pork. That is that the Russians needed it for their morale because they were the ones who were fighting and bleeding and dying. Um, And there's obviously something to this. Uh, The casualties suffered by the Red Army were enormous. Um, Not that a lot of Americans necessarily understood why the Russians are being given priority in things like butter and crab and pork. Uh, They've made these packets of dried borscht for the Russians, um, along with, of course, uh, whole sectors of, of the economy and of production. I mean, there were warplanes and tanks that were be- being built exclusively for Stalin. Um, some of the bombers, such as the A-20 or the Boston, as they called it over in, in the Soviet Union, uh, 
were actually built uh, near exclusively to the extent that they had more of them in the Soviet Air Force than in the U.S. Air Force. Um, uh, Alaska is, is a great example of this, the so-called Alcib route, where a lot of these warplanes were flown into Russia by way of the Bering Straits over Siberia. Uh, the, the unequal nature of the relationship, I think, is most dramatically illustrated there, where any American pilots who actually would have flown on to Russia or those who were, uh, after bombing raids in Japan who crash-landed there, were arrested as prisoners of war, whereas the Russians were invited to, to come and, and take over um, basically these air bases in Alaska and pretty much take over the town. Um, there, was, there was an astonishing lack of reciprocity in the relationship, which I, I think should have been questioned a little bit more, I think, by Roosevelt's key advisors. It was questioned by some people, but I think in the end, it was just this flood of patriotism and maybe almost a guilt. I mean, this guilt that the Russians were suffering more. Um, in the case of Britain, they did eventually curtail some of the deliveries, particularly things like aluminum after about 1943, realizing that they were actually undermining their own domestic production of warplanes. I think the British had to wise up to it a bit sooner than the Americans. And part of that is simply because of the prosperity, the vast hydraulic forces of the U.S. economy, even if there was rationing, they were still producing enough. That's probably how they saw it. They, they, they were producing enough so that they could be generous. They could share in this kind of selfless way with Stalin and the Red Army, who were, after all, suffering terribly. And how do you see um, Stalin's part in that the big three relationship? I mean, it, it seems that even though he was in a minority, in the sense there were two capitalist powers and he was a communist leader, that he very often seemed to get his way and almost dominate that group. Is that fair to say? Oh, I think it's quite fair to say. I mean, you can even begin with um, with, with simple geography and travel arrangements. Um, Stalin, in part because of his own paranoia about security, refused to leave the Soviet Union with the exception of Tehran, which is effectively under Soviet occupation and the full control of the NKVD. So that Churchill frequently had to travel uh, this roundabout route uh, to Moscow in these kind of unheated military cargo planes. So that even Roosevelt, who was who was effectively an invalid, uh, was forced to make these agonizing, grueling voyages to places such as Tehran and Yalta, which were not his first choice. In fact, they were effectively last after Stalin had ruled out all the other possibilities. So, so that shows Stalin's leverage up front, that everyone's coming to him. Um, now, at Tehran, I think it, it's entirely possible, had Roosevelt approached the conference differently, that he could have teamed up with Churchill and they could have moderated many of Stalin's demands. Um, there's one big example of this regarding uh, what would later become uh, D-Day, um, where Churchill had his uh, so-called Mediterranean stratagem, uh, these half a million troops in Italy and various landing craft, and he wanted uh, potentially to land troops somewhere in the Adriatic Littoral, possibly at Trieste, maybe even in the Aegean if the Turks could be induced to, to support it. Um, these were, of course, shot down. Uh, Roosevelt at one point um, indicated an interest in them, but but then so long as Stalin objected, Roosevelt immediately kind of stepped down. Roosevelt went out of his way to cultivate Stalin at the conference on numerous occasions. He actually insulted Churchill um, in front of Stalin uh, quite deliberately. Um, he lined up very clearly behind Stalin on, on questions regarding Eastern Europe and Poland and even to some extent the treatment of occupied Germany, um, where, uh, again, the, the, way, the way it was it was spun was that Churchill wanted a softer piece, um, so that it was clearly Roosevelt lining up alongside Stalin. Um, there's a lot of talk about Yalta. Honestly, I think most of the key decisions were actually made at Tehran. Essentially, it was baked in the cake by then, both the fate of Eastern Europe and, and even to some extent uh, the fate of Northern Asia, although they still had to work out the details. Uh, the basic idea that Stalin would not lift a finger to help until after the European was, war was over and then several months thereafter would uh, make this 
this kind of push in Northern Asia with the full support of the Allies, along with the Allied war material, that was already essentially baked into the cake, I think, at Tehran. Um, so that I think that it was possible that things might have turned out differently, but but simply as it worked out, Stalin got his way on, on virtually everything. And was that purely because he just dominated Roosevelt psychologically? That is, Was it really just the personal relationship between the two of them, or was it U.S. interests as well? I'm not sure that it was U.S. interest. Um, I think the personal element and perhaps Stalin's force of personality, I think, played some role along with Roosevelt's, perhaps there's a little bit of naivete or almost this kind of noblesse oblige, perhaps, that motivates him to think that, well, the needy Russians, uh, we must we must help them, give them what they want, and so on. I also think Stalin was just a really effective negotiator. Um, he simply didn't give in. He didn't give way. He was well-prepared. He was exceptionally well-informed. Uh, he came to Tehran, for example, with a clear list of what I suppose today we might call bullet points, of the things that he wanted. You know, he wanted the Allies to, to rule out any intervention um, in the Balkan area or in Eastern Europe, uh, a full frontal invasion of France, which to his was to his interest because it was also as far away from Eastern Europe as possible. He thought it would be both decisive in peeling off German forces, but also would probably bloody the Allies pretty well, uh, invading across the Channel against the well-fortified beach defenses. He even ruled out any subsidiary operations in the Mediterranean unless they were also in France. Um, uh, Questions regarding Poland and its future borders, the disposition of territory in Eastern Europe, uh, the Baltic countries uh, not helping against Japan in any way, not even... Uh, not even, for example, agreeing to stop arresting U.S. pilots who continued to land on Soviet soil after bombing Japan. He didn't even give any ground there. Um, Roosevelt asked him dozens of times whether Stalin might offer the use of Soviet air bases in the Far East for use against Japan. Never gave an inch. Um, so part of his negotiating strategy was quite simple. He simply stood firm. He knew what he wanted. He never accepted anything differently. He never even really had to compromise. I mean, that, that's a really astonishing story of Soviet diplomacy during the war is that uh, and the, same, the same thing happened with Hitler. It, it, may be, it might have backfired in the sense that, of course, as we saw, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. But when it came to the negotiations with, with Molotov in Berlin or even in um, earlier back in, um, in Moscow uh, during the, the time of the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact, um, the Soviet position was firm. He was a, a terrific, if slightly brutal, negotiator. And would you think a lot of this comes down to the fact that, as you were saying earlier, the Soviets were doing most of the land fighting against Germany? And, and did that strengthen his negotiating position a lot? Oh, I think it did. I mean, there, there's both the strategic argument and then there's also kind of the moral one. You know, we are the ones who are suffering. And and he would use this line with Churchill periodically, you know, this idea of, well, you know, if, if, if we get any sense that you might be dealing behind our back or not doing what we want, then uh, we might simply, you know, roll over and then, you know, you'll have all these German armies on your hands. Um, and there were periodic... Uh, peace parlays in Scandinavia between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, perhaps never especially serious. But there was always this idea, of course, that if that if the Soviet front collapsed, that obviously Britain and the United States would be hard-pressed to achieve very much against Nazi Germany. It was a great argument, and, and th- there was a lot of, I think, evidence to, to support it and make it plausible. As far as the casualties inflicted on the Wehrmacht, it's, it's clear that at least between 1941 and, and really D-Day, and then even again in 1945, that the vast majority of the casualties were being inflicted by the Red Army. Uh, the one argument I've, I've never quite found plausible, though, is this argument that uh, 
that the United States and Britain therefore weren't doing anything. That is to say that the Soviets had this almost, this moral blackmail. You're not fighting at all, or you're not tying down any German forces. And Stalin would frequently complain about this, that we're facing the strength of the German army. Um, In fact, the Germans always had to maintain forces in places such as Norway, in the Balkans, of course, in Italy, where they were actually fighting directly against the Allies before that, North Africa. Uh, Obviously, the forces defending the Channel, the anti-aircraft, uh, the, the regiments, the Luftwaffe divisions. The Germans certainly were maintaining sufficient forces in the field against the Allies. Um, but no, I think it is undeniable that if, if you're looking at that period of the war, uh, the vast majority of both uh, the dying and the killing, the, the bleeding, the suffering, but also the damage is being done uh, by the Red Army. It's another argument, of course, whether the Red Army would have even been winning without the Allied Lend-Lease aid. But that said, I think it is undeniable that uh, the the bulk of the casualties in the Wehrmacht uh, were being inflicted by the Red Army. And while this was all going on um, in in Europe, obviously there was a parallel conflict taking place in Asia. Prior to VE Day, how interested was Stalin in the, the war in China and the war between the US and Japan? Well, I think he was certainly following it closely. Um, but once again, was... was uh, firmly decided not to get involved until it served Soviet interests to do so. In fact, in some ways, uh, the Soviet intervention um, in Manchuria, North China, um, Korea, um, and in the islands, I think followed the template of Stalin's intended foreign policy actually much more closely than the war in Europe did. Uh, To some extent, that is to say, what, what Stalin hoped to happen in Europe actually did happen in Asia. He had hoped that Hitler and the Western allies would destroy each other, that the war would follow perhaps not the identical template to the First World War, but it would be this horrific war of attrition bleeding both sides, leaving Europe kind of ripe for the plucking. Um, That's actually what did happen in Asia. Um, And in fact, if you go back to 1941, it's quite clear that to the extent he had influence, again, which was not necessarily decisive, but there was some influence with Soviet agents, Soviet diplomats, Stalin was actually pushing, he was angling to get Japan to attack the U.S. and Britain, hoping that they would, of course, bleed each other's strength um, in the Pacific theater, that China would, of course, be to some extent bled white, bled dry. Um, and all of this would eventually pave the way for the, the final intervention, the, the decisive intervention, the one that would kind of turn the weight on the scales. In fact, the Asian War, from, from Stalin's perspective, um, transpired almost perfectly. And by the time Stalin actually did finally gear up to invade, he had to rush it a little bit at the last minute. That was the only part that didn't quite go according to plan. That's because of uh, Truman's decision to drop the atomic bomb. He had actually bump up his timetable by several weeks. But aside from that, this kind of almost eruption of the timing, everything actually proceeded perfectly because by the time the Soviets invaded Manchuria, Japan had withdrawn almost a million troops. Uh, Japan was concentrated on defending the home islands because uh, the United States had gotten close enough, of course, to rain down these horrific firebombs on Tokyo and Japan's other cities and then ultimately the atomic weapons. Uh, So that um, the Manchukuo, that is the Japanese forces in Asia, um, in Manchukuo or Manchuria, had been significantly weakened um, and so that when the Soviets finally did invade, it, it was not bloodless. I mean, it was not as if they, they moved forward against no opposition, but they moved forward against uh, seriously weakened opposition. I um, mean, they sustained very few casualties compared to the campaigning in Europe. Casualties me- uh, measured in perhaps a few dozen thousand deaths instead of, of course, the vast numbers of millions who died in Europe. Um, in that sense, actually, uh, uh, events in Asia actually transpired uh, far more uh, perfectly and kind of conveniently for Soviet interests than in Europe. By the time we get to the end of the war in in Asia as well, 
How successful has Stalin's war been? How much of what he wanted has he achieved? I think Stalin's achieved most of what he wanted. Um, It was perhaps never realistic, for example, that the Red Armies would have made it all the way to the English Channel and to France or something like that. Or perhaps I don't think there was ever really a a serious thought of conquering all of China. Um, So I would say on balance, he achieved most of what he set out to. And even when it comes to Europe, I think the Soviets probably would have expected if they ever had a chance in places like France and Italy, it probably would have occurred more in terms of internal political dynamics. Uh, there might have been a hope. I mean, I, I, it, you're never going to find a document that states this explicitly. You will find a little bit of a chatter about the subject, for example, that you will eventually get the Soviet armies in the heart of, of Central Europe. Um, but I think in Europe had that war of attrition developed differently that I was talking about, this idea that Hitler and the Western allies, instead of the Germans routing everyone really between 1939 and 1941, had that war done more damage to Europe and to to the infrastructure, to the population of these countries. I think Stalin certainly might have liked to be able to conquer all of Europe, but I'm not sure there was ever a realistic hope that that would transpire. That said, I think things did occur as close as maybe was realistically possible to Stalin's ultimate objectives. Uh, Admittedly, at a a colossal price in lives among Stalin's subjects, uh, perhaps as high as 30 million, the the estimates uh, continue to differ. They they keep being updated. Um, But I'm not sure that that was necessarily something which, which bothered Stalin unduly. And then, so for many people across Eastern Europe and then in parts of Asia, Essentially, one dictatorship, one totalitarian regime was replaced by another at the end of World War II. To you, does this represent a challenge to the concept of a good war that's often applied to the Second World War? Well, I think it does. I think to some extent you can actually see this in the legacy of both of the World Wars. That is to say that from the perspective of the United States, for example, which was mostly undamaged, at least in the sense of of the actual physical continental United States, aside from a few... Um, raids on the shorelines and shipping lanes and, of course, the the Pearl Harbor attack and so on. Britain obviously suffered a lot more in the Second World War directly, that is to say, than the first. But there's always been this sense, well, we did okay out of it. And so the war, after all, turned out all right in the end for for us and and for uh, the people, I suppose, that that we tend to to know and, and, and to talk about in the history of our own countries. But of course, it looks different if if you're in Eastern Europe or if you're in uh, perhaps Northern Asia, um, or if you're in, for example, the Korean Peninsula, where the war to some extent endures. Um, in the case of Eastern Europe, it obviously lasted at least another four and a half decades in the form of Soviet occupation, uh, frequent invasions, uh, repression, uh, deportations, of course, political prisons. Um, yeah, th- there's the comparative argument uh, where obviously Nazi occupation was no picnic either, and there was tremendous suffering. Uh, again, some of it depending on the groups you're talking about. Obviously, in the case of the Jews, uh, Nazi occupation at the death camps and the Holocaust, uh, it would be hard to say anything was worse than that. Um, for a lot of the other people, um, in fact, if you look at the numbers, for example, in certain areas of Poland or in Eastern Europe, the Soviets actually deported more people to labor camps than the Nazis did. So it kind of depends on, I suppose, which people in which regions you're talking about. Uh, That is to say, in this qualitative argument, it's not that one occupation was necessarily better or worse than the other. From the perspective of the locals, they they were both in some ways equally horrible, perhaps different in their emphases. Um, As far as the impact on the the economy, probably the Soviet occupation was actually worse in a lot of ways because it required nationalization of property, vast confiscations, um, 
uh, land reform, again, that some people benefited from, obviously, a lot of other people suffered from, um, but which which left stains and scars in the national psyche, um, you know, even to the extent of kind of, in the Polish case, this lying about history, the Soviet denial of the Katyn massacre um, of 1940, where for the whole Cold War, it was officially claimed that it was a Nazi German crime instead of a Soviet one. Uh, to me, I think the most glaring injustice in the post-war settlement actually has to do with Poland. Um, and Poland never received reparations. You know, Poland invaded by these two totalitarian neighbors in 1939, although a few individual Poles who uh, were either in forced labor camps or, or obviously died in the Holocaust. Some families have received some compensation at an individual level, but the country itself has actually never received reparations. Uh, in fact, they, they applied for restitution uh, with Germany as recently as uh, 2017, and their claim was denied on the basis that uh, Poland had forfeited her right to reparations by treaty in 1953, when, of course, Poland was an occupied Soviet satellite state and, and not really fully sovereign. Um, so a lot, there are a lot of lingering injustices in addition to, um, I think, just this general question you talk about, about whether, whether or not it was a good war. Uh, there were obviously um, uh, many people, many individuals, many countries in the United States, uh, to a large degree, one could say the war marks the emergence of the U.S. as, as a world power. You know, there's obviously a lot of pride in the victory. Um, you can see why, because of all the sacrifice and the loss, uh, people have wanted to to think the best about the war, uh, that it was a just war, that it was a good war. Um, but I do think that all those factors I was talking about uh, complicate and really muddy the story considerably. Now, obviously, for the Soviet Union bears a brunt of responsibility for the uh terrible things that they did to some of these occupied countries. But should any blame also fall on the Western leaders? Could they have foreseen what was going to happen after the war? I think they do share some blame, uh, particularly when it comes to matters such as the fate of Poland, um, you know, over which Churchill certainly put up more fight than Roosevelt did. But in the end, it was fairly ineffectual, that is, standing up for any sort of uh, what Churchill later called a square deal for Poland. They certainly didn't get one at either Tehran or Yalta. Um, I do think that those questions regarding Allied strategy, not simply about whether or not they had to ramp up the, the Lend-Lease aid to such gargantuan levels after 1943, when it was presumably no longer as desperately needed by the Soviets, or even to some extent, these, these questions of uh, deployment, um, priorities and possibilities. Churchill, uh, not just at Tehran, but well afterwards, as, as late as kind of Quebec in um, September of 1944, was still trying to urge Roosevelt uh, to do something about the Balkans. Um, Churchill bore some of the blame, I think, because of, of the way he ended up throwing in his lot with, with Tito, who effectively was Stalin's client. Um, but even then, there, there were certainly possibilities um, regarding the landing of Allied troops. Ch Churchill, he, he knew his history. He knew that in 1918, it was actually the Allied breakthrough in, in Macedonia that had actually played a role in finally defeating the German will to resist. Um, and I think he thought that the Allies could have struck a blow there. Um, they could have maybe either linked up with the Red Army or perhaps even beat the Red Army uh, to the pass um, in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, perhaps coming up uh, by way of Hungary, for example, uh, where the Germans didn't really have as strong defenses as they had in France. Um, I don't think D-Day was the only option that mattered for the Allies. There were other um, options they could have pursued strategically, militarily, in terms of, of deployments and priorities and spending. Um, I do think they also could have, and this is something everyone forgot about, they could have insisted far more strongly, put any kind of a quid pro quo on the aid they were sending to Stalin, that, for example, uh, the Red Army staged uh, an offensive simultaneous to D-Day, even after they decided to do this, um, something Stalin uh, 
I think quite slyly, uh, refused to do. He waited until several weeks afterwards, after the Germans had already moved in reinforcements. In a way, you can't blame him. I mean, his view was that his army had been doing so much more of the fighting and the bleeding and the dying, and he wanted the West to kind of suffer a little bit of the same bitter medicine. It's an understandable perspective, but that doesn't mean the Allies had to go along with it. Um, They could have attached all kinds of conditions to the aid they were sending the Soviet Union, uh, whether accepting responsibility for the Katyn massacre, which I think both Churchill and Roosevelt had eventually learned was was a Soviet crime, uh, whether regarding uh, the treatment of of Poland um, and other countries in Eastern Europe. Churchill's famous naughty napkin of... um, uh, 1944, when he discussed these matters with Stalin uh, in Moscow, by then it might have been it might have been too late. The Allies had had forfeited some of their chance, but it does raise the question of what else they might have demanded uh, had they pushed it firmer um, and earlier on. Uh, that is, these conditions: we will continue to supply your army so long as you play ball with us a little bit more in Eastern Europe and accept election observers, for example, or or accept that. Um, you you must treat the uh, the Polish exile government in London with more respect instead of calling them fascists. Um, there are all kinds of things the Allies could have insisted on uh, that they didn't. So I do think they do bear some responsibility. And as a whole, um, having written this book, how do you think we should change our understanding of the Second World War? Well, I hope that people don't see it maybe in quite the same black and white way in which it's often been perceived. Um, And I'm not just talking about the histories. In some ways, I'm talking as much about popular culture, um, everything from from novels, really, to to, to films. Um, That is this almost... uh, um, Keystone Cops version where you have these kind of cartoonish villains on the one side and, you know, these plucky heroic allies on the other. Um, this is obviously by no means meant to minimize the crimes of Nazi Germany, the crimes of Hitler and the Holocaust, but to understand that the war was was a complicated, fast-moving, contingent thing, that is, that could have gone differently at, at many points in time, and that, in fact, its conclusion was by no means... Um, an unrelievedly positive one for large swathes of Eastern Europe, Eurasia, uh, between Berlin and Beijing, that that the story actually had a very kind of a dark tinge and a dark edge, uh, even beyond the casualties and the losses that we know about, that for many countries it entailed the final settlement. It wasn't this kind of victory with um, you know, parades and, and kisses and, and flowers and chocolates, but in fact it it simply led to a series of civil wars and, and decades of suffering and oppression. Um, there was a price to this victory, um, and the price wasn't always paid, um, you know, perhaps in, in countries such as Britain and the United States. Britain certainly paid. I mean, the, I think more more so than the Americans, even with the rationing continuing on well after the war and, and just a kind of considerably reduced standard of living and ultimately, obviously, the collapse of the British Empire. I think it's clear that Britain... That Britain suffered in the war. I think in some ways that argument, I think, has to be made more forcefully in the United States, where the war, I think, is kind of seen a little bit more simplistically in this kind of um, black and white, good and evil way, um, that I think history needs to be perceived in all its complexity. And uh, and this story, however edifying it might be, is almost a kind of a parable about good and evil, um, you think about kind of the the Shire and the Tolkien novels and almost this this heroic legend of I suppose the the plucky hobbits defeating uh, the uh, the orcs and Sauron that might be an edifying tale and I think perhaps you know for children up to a certain age I think it kind of suffices as a historical narrative um, but I think I think once we achieve a more adult understanding of history I, I think that people deserve the truth in all its complexity. 
That was Sean McMeekin. Stalin's War was published yesterday by Alan Lane. There's a link in the show notes. And there's also a wealth of material on the Second World War at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Clayton. Tomorrow, we'll be speaking about women's prisons in 19th century Ireland. <laughs>